York. This is Democracy Now! War, uh, even so-called good wars against fascism like World War II, wars don't solve any fundamental problems, and they always poison everybody on both sides. They poison the minds and souls of everybody on both sides. We spend the hour remembering Howard Zinn, the legendary historian, author, professor, playwright, and activist born 100 years ago today. After witnessing the horrors of war as an Air Force bombardier in World War II, Zinn became a lifelong peace activist, joining the civil rights movement as a professor at Spelman College in Georgia, protesting the Vietnam War, even hiding the Pentagon Papers for whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg. Howard Zinn wrote the classic work, A People's History of the United States, that changed the way we look at history in America. He was a regular guest on Democracy Now! We'll feature his interviews and speeches, including of one of his final addresses in 2009. Remember this, the power of the people on top depends on the obedience of the people below. When people stop obeying, they have no power. When workers go on strike, huge corporations lose their power. When consumers boycott, huge business establishments uh, have to give in. Today, our Howard Zentennial. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Voters went to the polls Tuesday for primaries in Florida, New York, and Oklahoma. In New York, redrawn congressional districts led to the losses of two Democratic incumbents. In New York's redrawn 12th congressional district, Congressmember Gerald Nadler defeated fellow incumbent Carolyn Maloney, the chair of the House Oversight Committee. In the redrawn 10th congressional district, former federal prosecutor Dan Goldman defeated several more progressive opponents, including incumbent Mondaire Jones and Eulene New, a member of the New York Assembly. Goldman, who is an heir to the Levi Strauss fortune, spent $4 million of his own money on the race. He also picked up a controversial endorsement from The New York Times, whose publisher, Sulzberger, is a close family friend. In another closely watched New York race, Democrat Pat Ryan won a special election in a swing district in the Hudson Valley, defeating Republican Mark Molinaro for an open seat. Ryan campaigned heavily on the need to protect reproductive rights after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. He spoke Tuesday night. When the Supreme Court ripped away reproductive freedoms, access to abortion rights, we said, this is not what America stands for. As more and more kids are getting gunned down by the same weapons I carried in combat, we said, this is not what America stands for. In Florida, the state's former Republican governor, Charlie Crist, won Florida's Democratic primary for Governor Tuesday. Congressmember Crist will face Republican Governor Ron DeSantis in November. Crist spoke Tuesday night. The stakes could not be any higher for this election. Our fundamental freedoms are literally on the ballot, my friends. A woman's right to choose on the ballot. Democracy on the ballot. Your rights as minorities are on this ballot. That's what's at stake in this election. Make no mistake about it. 
because this guy wants to be president of the United States of America and everybody knows it. However, when we defeat him on November 8th, that show is over. In another Florida race of note, 25-year-old Maxwell Alejandro Frost won the Democratic primary in Florida's 10th congressional district. He's set to become the first Afro-Cuban American and first member of the Generation Z to serve in Congress. Frost is the former national organizing director for March for Our Lives, which was formed by survivors of the Parkland shooting in Florida. Meanwhile, Val Demings easily won the Democratic primary for Senate Tuesday. She'll face Republican Senator Marco Rubio in November. The Biden administration set to formally announce $3 billion in more military aid to Ukraine. The announcements expected today, coinciding with Ukraine marking its Independence Day, as well as the six-month anniversary of the Russian invasion. Public gatherings have been banned in Kyiv due to fears of Russian strikes. Earlier today, Pope Francis repeated his call to end the war. He also warned of a potential nuclear disaster at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. In recent weeks, Russia and Ukraine have accused each other of attacking the plant, which has been under Russian control since March. On Tuesday, the U.N. Security Council held a meeting about Zaporizhia at the request of Russia. This is U.N. political chief Rosemary DiCarlo. We must be clear that any potential damage to the plant or any other nuclear facilities in Ukraine leading to a possible nuclear incident would have catastrophic consequences, not only for the immediate vicinity, but for the region and beyond. The New York Times reports the United Nations is facing a record age shortfall to address growing humanitarian crises around the world. While the U.N. appeals for money for Ukraine have exceeded requests, other appeals have fallen far short. According to The Times, U.N. appeals are only 11 percent funded for Haiti, 12 percent for El Salvador, 14 percent for Burundi and 17 percent for Burma. The Biden administration is expected to make an announcement today on student debt cancellation. According to multiple news accounts, the administration will cancel $10,000 of federal student loans for borrowers making $125,000 or less a year. The plan has been widely panned by groups pushing for broader student debt relief. Derek Johnson, the head of the NAACP, tweeted Tuesday, President Biden's decision on student debt cannot become the latest example of a policy that's left black people, especially black women behind. A jury in Michigan has convicted two members of the far-right Boogaloo movement of conspiring to kidnap Michigan's Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2020. The men, Barry Croft and Adam Fox, face up to life in prison. During closing arguments, prosecutors claim the men were hoping to, quote, set off a second American civil war, unquote. Defense lawyers have maintained their clients were entrapped by FBI informants. The National Archives is, Donald is claiming Donald Trump took more than 700 pages of classified documents to his resort in Florida after leaving the White House. That's according to a letter the National Archives sent to Trump's lawyers in May. The letter also appears to confirm some of the documents were highly sensitive material related to special access programs. The archives released a letter Tuesday, just over two weeks after FBI agents searched Trump's property at Mar-a-Lago and seized more documents that had not been previously turned over. 
A former Louisville police detective has pleaded guilty in federal court to conspiring to falsify the search warrant used to justify the deadly raid on Breonna Taylor's home two years ago. Kelly Goodlett, who resigned from the Louisville police earlier this month, becomes the first officer to be convicted for involvement in the raid during which police officers shot Taylor dead in her own home. In Georgia, a special prosecutor has dropped charges against two Atlanta police officers involved in the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks, an unarmed 27-year-old black man who was shot dead in the parking lot of a Wendy's restaurant in 2020. The incident began when police found Brooks sleeping in his car outside Wendy's. The police questioned Brooks, patted him down, gave him a breathalyzer test. During a scuffle, he grabbed one of the officer's stun guns and attempted to run away. An officer then shot Brooks in the back two times. The officer, Garrett Roth, can then be heard on a body cam video saying, I got him. The president of the NAACP in Georgia, Gerald Griggs, criticized the decision to drop charges, saying, quote, there's no statute of limitations on a murder case, and there will be no statute of limitations on our efforts to ensure there's justice for Rayshard Brooks, he said. In more news about police violence, the Justice Department's launched a federal civil rights probe into three officers in Arkansas who were filmed on Saturday brutally beating 27-year-old Randall Worcester, as they pressed him face-first into the pavement. The three officers involved have been suspended. In news from the Middle East, the U.S. has announced it carried out airstrikes in eastern Syria Tuesday. In a statement, the U.S. Central Command said the strikes targeted sites affiliated with Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights said the U.S. attacks killed at least six Syrian and foreign fighters. Iran's foreign ministry condemned the U.S. strikes as a, quote, violation by the U.S. Army of the people and infrastructures of Syria. In Malaysia. Former Prime Minister Najib Razak will serve 12 years in prison for his role in looting some $4.5 billion from the state fund. A top court on Tuesday upheld his 2020 conviction on money laundering, abuse of power and other corruption-related charges. Many called the verdict historic, as Razak is the first former Malaysian prime minister to be sent to prison. He served from 2009 to 2018, when he was defeated in that year's election due to mounting public anger over the fraud scandal. In Thailand, the Constitutional Court has suspended Prime Minister Prayuth Chan-o-Acha from official duties as it reviews a petition challenging the legality of his eight-year term limit. The petition was filed by Thailand's leading opposition party, arguing his time spent as head of a military government after he staged a coup in 2014 should count towards his constitutionally stipulated term as prime minister. In Mexico, journalist and columnist Fredid Roman was shot dead in the state of Guerrero on Monday. He's the 15th journalist killed in Mexico so far in 2022. Roman was reportedly gunned down by unknown attackers on a motorcycle in the city of Chilpanceningo. Before his murder, Roman had published a column discussing the alleged involvement of local politicians in the 2014 disappearance of the 43 students from Ayotzinapa in a new report by Mexico's Truth Commission calling the disappearances a state crime. 
Texas has declared emergencies in over 20 counties after torrential rain in recent days triggered flash floods, turning roads into rivers, destroying homes and killing at least one person. In the city of Mesquite, a woman died after her car was swept away by floodwater. She was identified as 60-year-old Jolene Jarrell, a mother and grandmother who worked as an Uber driver. She was on her way home from dropping off a passenger when she was caught in the massive flood. In more news from Texas, a five-year-old girl from Guatemala drowned in the Rio Grande Monday. Margaret Sofia was reportedly ripped from her mother's arms after the girl was pulled by heavy, muddy waters as they tried to swim across the river between Juarez, Mexico and El Paso, Texas. The girl's mother, Silvia Garcia del Carmen, was rescued. This is the head of the firefighters in Ciudad Juarez. The water levels of the Bravo River are swollen, and people who try to cross are risking their lives. That is what happened in this case. We received a report of a person in this part of the river. The fire and rescue departments intervened and rescued the body of a five-year-old girl. This comes as the Biden administration continues to enforce Title 42, the Trump-era pandemic policy, which has blocked some two million asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border from entering the country through safer routes and ports of entry to apply for refuge in the United States. And the former head of security at Twitter has filed a whistleblower complaint with federal agencies describing what he calls, quote, extreme egregious deficiencies by Twitter, unquote, that pose a threat to user privacy and national security. The software engineer, Peter Zatko, who's better known by his hacker name Mudge, alleges Twitter has misled federal regulators about its cybersecurity defenses. He spoke on CNN Tuesday. There's an analogy of an airplane. So you get on an airplane and every passenger and the uh, uh, attendant crew all have access to the cockpit, to the controls. You know, that's entirely unnecessary. It might be easy, but there it's too easy to accidentally or intentionally turn an engine off. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, we spend the hour remembering Howard Zinn, the late, great historian, author, professor, playwright, and activist. Zinn was born 100 years ago, on August 24, 1922, to working-class Jewish immigrant parents in Brooklyn. He died in 2010 at the age of 87, but his books continue to be read across the globe. At 18, Zinn began working as a shipyard worker, then joined the Air Force, where he served as a bombardier in World War II. After witnessing the horrors of war, Howard Zinn went on to become a lifelong dissident and peace activist. He was active in the civil rights movement and other struggles for social justice, taught at Spelman College in Atlanta, or the historically black college for women. He was fired for insubordination for standing up for student protesters. While at Spelman, he served on the executive committee of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinator. Committee. After being forced out of Spelman's and became a professor at Boston University, in 1967, he published Vietnam, The Logic of Withdrawal. It was the first book on the war to call for immediate withdrawal, no conditions. A year later, he and Father Dan Berrigan traveled to North Vietnam to receive the first three American prisoners of war released by the North Vietnamese. When Dan Ellsberg needed a place to hide the Pentagon Papers before they were leaked to the press, he went to Howard and his late wife, Ra Zinn. 
1980, Howard Zinn published his classic work, A People's History of the United States. The book would go on to sell over a million copies, change the way we looked at history in the United States. Howard Zinn was a regular guest on Democracy Now! from the time we went on the air in 1996 up until his death. We begin today's show with an interview I did with Howard Zinn in 2005, when he came to our Firehouse studio. It is great to have you with us. Well, it's nice of you to invite me. I was worried. <laughs> well, you just came from Bedford Hills Correctional Facility? Well, actually, uh, yesterday afternoon I spoke at the Bedford Hills euphemistically called Correctional Facility. I don't hardly correct anything, but spoke to prisoners there, women prisoners mostly prisoners of color, and spoke to them yesterday afternoon before I gave this talk last night at Manhattanville College. And what did you talk about with the women? Well, I, they had been using my book. They, they, had, they have classes. They're using my book, A People's History of the United States. Uh, they wanted, And I talked to them about history, about doing history, about why I did history the way I did, <laughs> why I did you know, unneutral history, why I, and how I came to do it. And I told them something about my life. And, of course, I always like to talk about that, you know. And <laughs> I... Uh, uh, and then they asked a lot of questions. A very lively, enthusiastic, excited group. I mean, if every teacher in the country had a class like that, you know, they would be inspired. And it's wonderful, and I've always found this to be true, wonderful and always amazing when you talk to prisoners uh, who should be the last ones to be up and optimistic and in good spirits, but uh, it's always there. Uh, it, it, it's actually encouraging uh, you know, and of course, troubling to know that these people, these remarkable people, are being kept in prison, you know, very often, most of the time for nonviolent crimes, and kept there for long periods of time. It's sort of sad commentary on American society to have people in Washington <laughs> who are free, <laughs> and these people are in prison. You talked about being a teacher, but Howard's in the places you were uh, where you did teach. Well, Spelman, you were fired, and Boston University, you were almost fired. Oh, are you trying to make me out as a troublemaker? <laughs> what happened to you at Spelman? Well, at Spelman, I, I got involved with my students and the. the, the actions that were going on in the South, the sit-ins, the demonstrations, the picket lines. I was supporting my students, and and uh, this was the first black president of Spelman College, a very conservative institution. He wasn't happy about me joining the students in all of these things, wasn't happy about a lot of things that they did, but he couldn't do anything about it. But when I, the students came back from, you might say, from jail, and then rebelled against the campus regulations and the restrictions on them, and I supported them. During that the civil rights years. This is yeah. These were during the civil rights years, and and uh, and so you know he was very unhappy with the fact that I was supporting the students who were rebelling against the paternalism and the authoritarianism on that campus. They were uh, women students. Yeah, these were black women students, and and uh, and you know the the movement brought them out of this little sort of uh, convent-like atmosphere of Spelman College and out into the world. The author, Alice Walker, was one of those students? Yeah, Alice Walker was one of my students. Marion Wright Edelman, the head of the Children's Defense Fund now in Washington, she was one of my students. I'm very proud of, of, of those students I had at Spelman. 
Um, and uh, yeah, Marion Marion Wright Edelman was in jail, and Alice Walker was in jail, and um, yeah, it was a great moment. Now, Boston University was many years later. Why did you almost get thrown out of there? Why did I almost get thrown out of Boston University? We had a strike. Faculty went on strike. Secretaries went on strike. They settled with the faculty after what was a successful strike, but not with the secretaries. And so I and some other faculty refused to cross the secretary's picket line. And and five of us who refused to do that uh, were threatened with firing, even though all of us had tenure. And so it was a long struggle, but we won. Going back before both of your... uh, Ten years as professor, you were a bombardier in World War II. Mm, that's true. Yes, and yeah. you talk about your final bombing run—not mm. over Japan, not over Germany, mm. but over France. Yeah. Well, um, we thought the bombing missions were over. The war was about come to an end. This was in April of 1945. You may remember the war ended in early May 1945. This was a few weeks before the war was going to be over, and everybody knew it was going to be over, and our armies were past France into Germany, but there was a little pocket of German soldiers hanging around this little town of Royan on the Atlantic coast of France, and the Air Force decided to bomb them. 1,200 heavy bombers, uh, and I was in one of them, uh, flew over this little town of Royan and dropped napalm, first use of napalm in the European theater. Uh, And we don't know how many people we killed, how many people were terribly burned as a result of what we did, but uh, I did it like most soldiers do, unthinkingly, uh, mechanically, thinking we're on the right side, they're on the wrong side, and therefore we can do whatever we want and it's okay. And only afterward, only really after the war, when I was reading about Hiroshima from John Hersey and reading the stories of the survivors of Hiroshima and what they went through, only then did I begin to think about the human effects of bombing. Only then did I begin to think about what it meant to human beings on the ground when bombs were dropped on them because as a bombardier you know I was flying at 30,000 feet six miles high couldn't hear screams couldn't see blood and this is modern warfare modern warfare you soldiers fire they drop bombs and they they're they have no notion really of what is happening to the human beings that they're firing on everything is done at a distance this enables terrible atrocities to take place and I think uh, reflecting back on that bomb raid uh, and thinking of that in Hiroshima and all the other raids on civilian cities and the killing of huge numbers of civilians in German and Japanese cities, the killing of 100,000 people in Tokyo in one night of firebombing, all of that made me realize war, uh, even so-called good wars against fascism like World War II, wars don't solve any fundamental problems and they always poison the everybody on both sides. They poison the minds and souls of everybody on both sides. We're seeing that now in Iraq, where the minds of our soldiers are being poisoned by being an occupying army in a land where they are not wanted. And the results are terrible. You learned you dropped napalm on this French village? Well, we didn't. How did it actually didn't know what it was. They said, oh, you're not going to have the usual 500-pound demolition bombs. Uh, you're going to 
carry one, you're going to carry 30 100-pound canisters of jellied gasoline. We had no idea what that was, but it was napalm. You went to that village later? Uh, later, I went, yeah. Later, I visited that village about 10 years after the war, I went, and I went to the uh, the library, which had been destroyed and which was now rebuilt, and I dug out uh, records of what the survivors and what they had written about the bombing, and, and I, I wrote and uh, I wrote a, a kind of essay of, about the bombing of Huayon, uh, which appears. Uh, where does it appear? <laughs> it appears in my book, The Zin Reader, and also in my book, The Politics of History. Uh, but it was, uh, um, for me, it was a very important experience, a very a great uh, sobering lesson about so-called good wars. You learned when you were there on the ground many years later who had died? Well, I, you know, I spoke to people who, who had survived that and who, who, whose family members had died, and they were very bitter uh, about... Uh, the bombing, and uh, you know they tr- attributed it to all sorts of things, the desire to try out a new weapon it 's amazing how many things are done in war just to try out new weapons. you know maybe the, the one of the reasons for dropping the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was to see what this does to human beings. Human beings become uh, sacrifices in the desire to develop new uh, military technology, and I think that was one of those instances. We're talking to historian Howard Zinn here in our firehouse studio in Chinatown, just blocks from where the towers of the World Trade Center once stood. You went to Vietnam, to North Vietnam, with Dan Berrigan? Yeah, yeah. Why? Why? (laughs) Well, uh, this was early 1968. This was the time of the Tet Offensive, also the time of the Tet Holiday, uh, the, the Vietnamese holiday. And the North Vietnamese decided they wanted to release the first three airmen prisoners uh, who had been shot down uh, over North Vietnam, and they wanted to release them in the custody of not the American government, but the peace movement. So Daniel Berrigan, poet, priest, whom I had never met before, he and I traveled together to Hanoi, to North Vietnam, to pick up these three uh, American airmen uh, who were being released by the North Vietnamese. And then we spent uh, some time in Hanoi and in the surrounding area, visited bombed-out areas, visited little villages that had been uh, jet-bombed in the middle of the night, a million miles from any possible military target. Uh, and, and that we, we, we were being bombed. Vietnam was being bombed every night. Every day we were going into air raid shelters. Uh, every night Daniel Berrigan would write a poem about what had happened uh, that day. Um, and, uh, no. Um, what do you say to those then and now, um, b- before the invasion, who would go to Iraq, those who went to North Vietnam, when they would be called traitors, giving comfort to the enemy? 
You mean Americans who went to North Vietnam? You mean like Jane Fonda and so many others who went to North Vietnam? And Iraq before. I mean, even and people like Congressmember McDermott of Seattle, oh, reporters saying that they should Iraq. resign. And, I mean, what about, you know, there's people and voices in the wilderness, Americans who went to Iraq and violating the U.S. Uh, sanctions and bringing food and medicine, you know, and the whole business of being traitors. You know, I think there's a whole, there's a somehow some wrongheaded notion of what treason is and what patriotism is. And there's some notion that if you disobey the orders of your government or the laws of your government, you're being treasonous. But I believe the government is being treasonous and the government is being unpatriotic when the government violates the fundamental rights of human beings. When the government invades another country, uh, a country that has not attacked it, a country that has not threatened it, when our government invades another country and, and drops bombs and kills huge numbers of people, and then Americans have the, the, the guts to go to that country and bring people food and medicine, or go to see what is going on, as many Americans did when they went to Vietnam. Uh, I think these are the most patriotic Americans, and you know, if you define patriotism as obedience to the government, then you, you are, I think, following a kind of totalitarian principle, because that's the principle of a totalitarian state, that the, you, you do what the government tells you to do. And democracy means that the government is a, an instrument of the people, and that this is the Declaration of Independence. Governments are artificial entities set up in order to preserve the rights, equal right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness of people. When the government violates those rights, it is the duty of people to defy that government. That is patriotism. Howardson, you called your autobiography, You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train. Why? Well, uh, it came from, uh, I stole it from myself. That is, I used to say that to my classes at the beginning of every class. I, didn't, I, w I wanted to be honest with them about the fact that they were not entering a class where the teacher would be neutral. It was not going to be a class where, you know, the teacher spent a half a year with a, or a year with the students and they hadn't, would have no idea where the teacher stood on the important issues. This is not going to be a neutral class, I said. I don't believe in neutrality. I believe neutrality is impossible because the world is already moving in certain directions. Wars are going on. Children are starving. And to be neutral, to pretend to neutrality, to not take a stand in a situation like that is to collaborate with whatever's going on, to allow it to happen. I did not want to be a collaborator with what was happening. I wanted to to enter into history. I wanted to play a role. I wanted my students to play a role. I wanted us to intercede. I wanted my history uh, to intercede uh, and to take a stand on behalf of peace, on behalf of, of the racial equality or sexual equality. Uh, and uh, so I wanted my students to know that right from the beginning. No, you can't be neutral on a moving train. That's Howard Zinn joining us in 2005 in Democracy Now!'s Firehouse Studio at Downtown Community Television, DCTV. When we come back, we continue with our Zentennial with a speech Howard Zinn made two weeks after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan in 2001, launched what became the longest war in U.S. history. Back in 30 seconds. It was early springtime and the strike was on. 
Drove us miners out of doors, out from the houses that the company owned. We moved into tents up at Old Ludlow. I was worried bad about my children, soldiers guarding the railroad bridge. Every once in a while— Ludlow Massacre by Woody Guthrie, about a Colorado militia gunning down coal strikers in 1914. Howard Zinn once said hearing the song was a defining moment for him and inspired him to research and tell stories left out of most history books. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, as we continue with our Zentennial. That's right, remembering the legendary historian Howard Zinn on what would have been his 100th birthday. On October 21, 2001, Howard Zinn gave a major address at the University of Vermont, Burlington. This was just over a month after the 9-11 attacks and two weeks after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, beginning what became the longest war in U.S. history. It was a year ago this month when the U.S. finally withdrew from Afghanistan and the Taliban regained control. This is Howard Zinn in 2001. I emphasize this because we have to understand what we are doing in Afghanistan to end terrorism, because we need to end terrorism. We absolutely need to end terrorism. We have to—yes. And, uh, and we have to begin to think about what we need to do to end terrorism. And we have to think about whether bombing Afghanistan is going to end terrorism, you know. And because, you know, how much thinking went into this? How much, really, how much thinking went into this? You think, there are all these mines. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many mines you have, it's the quality of mine that counts. And, and it's, it's also, you know, the, 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 the morality of these mines and the understanding of these minds that, that there may be people in other countries who deserve to live as much as those people in the Twin Towers deserve to live. No, that's, no. No. Uh, so, well, people say, yeah, but you must do something. I agree. People say, you can't do nothing. I agree. You must do something. I like the logic. You must do something. Therefore, bomb. I don't get it. I mean, that's the only possible thing you can do if you must do something. Uh, the uh, medical students, you know, confronted, you know, with, Somebody has a leg infection, they don't know what to do about it. Amputate. <laughs> the medical students take the oath of Hippocrates. You don't know what to do. Something is bad, really bad. You must do something. But the first rule is do no harm. Let's just have to start off with that. You do no harm. We are doing great harm. Great harm. You see. And, uh, if you, if you think we're not, try to imagine and say, well, well, you know, we're not killing that many people. 
We're not killing that many people. We don't know how many people we're killing. First of all, because you can't believe the government. I'm not saying you can believe the Taliban. No, all governments lie, <laughs> right? But it's just a matter of common sense and knowing the history of bombing that we know, and, and just in the little reports that come through, even through the filter of, of control and so on, you know, there were reporters, you know, in villages in Afghanistan reporting, and there they were, right on the spot, and there are these, uh, these houses destroyed, and there is these freshly dug graves, and, and there is a man who lost his wife and four kids in a bombing, and there, and there's some things are admitted, just a Red Cross compound was hit, right, on the same day that Bush is asking people to contribute to the Red Cross. Well, if you're going to, we're going to contribute to the Red Cross, first assure us that you're not going to bomb the Red Cross, you see. And uh, the, no, the people, you know, if, if you think we're, you know, what we're doing in, in, in Afghanistan is, you know, it's not very much, you know. Uh, consider that there are hundreds of thousands of people in Afghanistan who are fleeing the cities and towns in which they live. Have you seen the pictures of Afghan refugees? It started as soon as Bush promised to bomb, because there are certain American promises they can count on, you see. And that's one of them. Uh, and the, the refugees immediately uh, began moving. And, and so you see the pictures of, of, of these families with all their possessions, or as many of their possessions they carry on their backs and their wagons and their kids, and, uh, and hundreds of thousands of them. So, so this isn't a small thing. This isn't just, oh, we're killing a few people and that's a price we're willing to pay. We are terrorizing Afghanistan. I'm not exaggerating. The people who are, the people who are in Kabul, the people who are in Kabul, the people are in Kabul and people in other places in Afghanistan have to live with the fear of these bombs. Have you lived under bombs? Do you know what it is? Can you imagine what it's like? And you, you're in a very backward, technologically, right, undeveloped country, and there are these monster machines coming over with this ferocious noise and the lights and the flashing and the explosions. And it's, yes, we're terrorizing people in Afghanistan. And it's not, it's not right to respond to the fact that we have been terrorized, as we have, not right to respond to that by terrorizing other people. Absolutely wrong, you see. You know. You know. And, and furthermore, it's not going to help. I mean, you say, well, maybe it may be worth doing because this will end terrorism. I mean, how much common sense does it take to know that you, can, you, you cannot end terrorism by indiscriminately just throwing bombs on Afghanistan? And, and then, of course, you hear the reports, we have, we have now destroyed three of their camps, so we've destroyed four. Who are you kidding? How many hours does it take to set up a training camp? How easy it is to move from one place to another? I mean, the history of bombing is mostly a history of futility. Yes, really. You know, 
There's a book that came out recently called A History of Bombing. <laughs> and the history of bombing, oh, and now, I, I was a bombardier. And, uh, and, and sure, the technology has improved, although it was claimed, even then, it was claimed our bombs are smart because we're using the special bomb site, this Norden bomb site. People really believed that. Even we believed that, we who were using the bomb site. Because we would bomb at 11,000 feet or 4,000 feet, and we got pretty close to the target. But then when we flew on missions, we were bombing at 30,000 feet, and the bombs went all over the place and killed an awful lot of people, all sorts of people. You know, it didn't matter. I say it didn't matter because these people were ciphers. Who are these people? I didn't even see them. You bomb, you bomb another country, you don't see these people. You're bombing from high altitudes. You know, our planes are bombing at high altitudes because they want to escape anti-aircraft fire, right? No, you don't see anything on the ground. You see flashes and you see explosions and you may take pictures, but you don't, you don't hear screams, you don't see blood, you don't see severed limbs, you don't see any of that. We saw that in New York. We saw those scenes in New York. They horrified us. We, we saw people in panic running, running from that, those explosions, that enormous pile of debris, you know, and, and we were horrified. These were real people to us. But then, if we bomb other countries, those people are not real to us. One of the things I thought of after I got over my initial horror at what happened in New York, I thought, hey, that's what it must have been like when I was bombing in Europe. That's what it must have been like, and I didn't even know it, because these people were ciphers to me, you see. And then I thought, maybe to these terrorists, that's what it is for them. Oh, 6,000 human beings. You know, no, they have a mission. They have a goal. No. Uh, they're, not, they're not human beings to terrorists. And people in other parts of the world have not been human beings to us. And if there's anything we might get out of this experience, is that we might take that horror that we have felt looking at those scenes in New York and the compassion that we have felt for the people who endured this and their families and extend this to people in other parts of the world who have been enduring this, enduring this for a very long time. You know. And that does mean, that does mean examining the United States and our policies. You know, if, if you, because, you know, when you do that, when you suggest that, say, you know, I think maybe we ought to look at ourselves and our policies. There's people say, oh, you're justifying what happened. No, no, absolutely not. To explain is not to justify. But if you don't want to explain anything, you will never learn anything. So you have to accept to understand. You have to explain without justifying. And you have to look, yes, you have to dig down and see if you can figure out what is at the root of this terrorism. Because there is something at the root besides, you know, uh, irrational, uh, murderous feeling. 
And, and yes, this was murderous, fanatical feeling. But, but these were not simply madmen who just, you know, there are people like who just go berserk and kill everybody in sight, right? We know that because, you know, we've had, seen that in our country. You know, somebody just, you know, something goes haywire in them and they just go wild and they, no, it's not, it's not that, terrorism is not that sort of thing. It's there, there's something underneath uh, that, in, you know, that fanaticism which may have a core of truth to it. That is, there's something in the core of belief of these terrorists which may also be at the core of belief of millions of other people in the world who are not terrorists, who are angry at American policy, but who are not fanatic enough to go and kill Americans because they're angry at our policy, but who are capable of doing that if they are even more aroused. And even if, if we begin even doing more things to anger them, there's an, you might say there's a reservoir of possible terrorists among all those people in the world who have suffered as a result of U.S. foreign policy. Now, I don't know if you think I'm exaggerating when I say there are millions of people in the world who have suffered as a result of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, but yes, there are. And Bush, at a recent press conference said something like, I don't understand why these people hate us. No, I don't, I, you know, said, we are good. That's what he said. We are good. You know, look at me. I'm good. You know. Well, sometimes the United States is good. Yes. There are a lot of good things about the United States. And yes, there are times when the United States is good. And then there are times, unfortunately many times, too many times, when the United States has been bad. Uh, evil, really. And has carried out policies that have resulted in the deaths of, yes, millions of people. Legendary historian Howard Zinn, speaking at the University of Vermont in Burlington in 2001, just two weeks after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan and launched what became the longest war in U.S. history. Back with our Zentennial in a moment. Part 1 and 2 by the trumpeter Jamie Branch's group Fly or Die. Jamie died August 22nd at the age of 39 in Brooklyn, New York. 
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue with our Zentennial, that's right, the legendary historian Howard Zinn would have been 100 years old today. In 2006, we featured a speech Zinn delivered in Madison, Wisconsin, as he received the Haven Center's Award for Lifetime Contribution to Critical Scholarship. His lecture was titled, The Uses of History and the War on Terrorism. I was talking to my barber the other day, because we always discuss world politics, and he's totally politically unpredictable, uh, as most barbers are. You see. Uh, he said, he said, Howard, he said, um, you know, you and I disagree on many things. But on one thing we agree. War solves nothing. And I thought, yeah, it's not hard for people to grasp that. And there again, history is useful. We've had a history of war after war after war after war. What have they solved? What have they done? Even World War II, the good war, the war in which I volunteered, the war in which I dropped bombs, the war after which, you know, I, you know, I received a letter from General Marshall, general of generals, a letter addressed personally to me and to 16 million others, uh, in which he said, we've won the war, it will be a new world. Well, of course, it wasn't a new world. It hasn't been a new world. War after war after war. There's certain, I came out of that war, the war in which I'd volunteered, the war in which I was an enthusiastic bombardier, I came out of that war with certain I, ideas which just developed gradually at the end of the war, ideas about war. One, that war corrupts everybody who engages in it. War poisons everybody who engages in it. Uh, you start off as the good guys, as we did in World War II. They're the bad guys. They're the fascists. What could be worse? Uh, so they're the bad guys. We're the good guys. And as the war goes on, the good guys begin behaving like the bad guys. You can trace this back to the, the Peloponnesian War. You can trace it back to the good guy, the Athenians, and the bad guys, the Spartans. And after a while, the Athenians become ruthless and cruel like the Spartans. And we did that in World War II. We, after Hitler committed his atrocities, we committed our atrocities. Uh, now, our killing of 600,000 civilians in Japan, our killing of uh, probably an equal number of civilians in Germany, these, they weren't Hitler, they weren't Toja, they weren't, no, they were just ordinary people like, like we are ordinary people uh, with, uh, living in a country that is a marauding country, and they were living in countries that were marauding countries, and they were, they were caught up in, in whatever it was and afraid to speak up. Uh, and I, don't know, I came to the conclusion, yes, war poisons everybody. And war, uh, this is an important thing to keep in mind, that when you go to war against a tyrant, and this was one of the claims, oh, we're going to get rid of Saddam Hussein, which was, was cost nonsense. They didn't. Did our government care that Saddam Hussein tyrannized his own people? We helped him tyrannize his people. We helped him gas the Kurds. We helped him accumulate weapons of mass destruction, really. Uh, and, uh, but when you go to war against a tyrant, 
The people you kill in the war are the victims of the tyrant. The people we killed in Germany were the victims of Hitler. The people we killed in Japan were the victims of the Japan Imperial Army, you know. And, uh, and the people who die in wars are more and more and more people who are not in the military. You, you may know this about the different ratio of civilian to military deaths in war, how in World War I, 10 military dead for one civilian dead. In World War II, it was 50-50, half military, half civilian. In Vietnam, it was 70% civilian and 30% military. And in the war since then, it's 80% and 85% civilian. Uh, uh, I became friends a few years ago with an Italian war surgeon named Gino Strada. Wrote a, spent, he spent 10 years, 15 years, doing surgery on war victims all over the world. And he wrote a book about it, Green Parrots, Diary of a War Surgeon. He said, in all the patients that he operated on in Iraq and Afghanistan and everywhere, 85% of them were civilians, one-third of them children. If you understand, and if people understand, and if you spread the word of this understanding, that whatever is told to you about war and how, in, how we must go to war and whatever the threat is or whatever the goal is, democracy or liberty, it will always be a war against children. They're the ones who will die in large numbers. The war, well, Einstein said this after World War I, he said, war cannot be humanized, it can only be abolished. War has to be abolished. You know, and uh, it's, uh, I, know, I know, I know it's a long shot. <laughs> I understand that. But you have to, when something is a long shot, but it has to be done, you have to start doing it. Just as the ending of slavery in this country in the 1830s was a really long shot, but people stuck at it. And it took 30 years, but slavery was done away with. And uh, we can see this again and again. So uh, we, have a, we have a job to do. We have lots of things to do. Uh, one of the things we can learn from history is that history is not only a history of things inflicted on us by the powers that be. History is also a history of resistance. It's a history of, of people uh, who endure tyranny for decades uh, but who ultimately rise up and overthrow the dictator. We've seen this in country after country, surprise after surprise. Rulers who seem to have total control, they suddenly wake up one day and there are uh, a million people in the streets and they pack up and leave. Uh, they, uh, we, this has happened in the Philippines and, the, uh, and uh, in Yemen, in uh, all over, in uh, Nepal, million people in the streets, and then the ruler has to get out of the way. Uh, so uh, this is what we're aiming for uh, in this country. Everything we do is important. Every little thing we do, every, every picket line we walk on, every letter we write, every act of civil disobedience we engage in, uh, any recruiter that we talk to, any parent that we talk to, any GI that we talk to, any young person that we talk to, anything we do in class, outside of class, 
Everything we do in the direction of a different world uh, is uh, important, uh, even though at the moment they seem futile, uh, because that's how change comes about. Change comes about when millions of people do little things which at certain points in history come together, and then uh, something good and something important happens. Thank you. Legendary historian Howard Zinn speaking in 2006. Well, three years later, in May of 2009, the year before he died, Howard Zinn joined us in the Democracy Now! studio as he launched the paperback edition of A Young People's History of the United States. I asked him if he thought his retelling of history about Columbus and other traditional heroes was suitable for children. It's true that uh, people have asked that question again and again. Uh, now, should we tell uh, kids uh, that Columbus, whom they have been told was a great hero, that uh, Columbus mutilated Indians and kidnapped them and killed them uh, in pursuit of gold? Or should we tell people that uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who is held up as one of our great presidents, was really a, a warmonger who loved military exploits and who congratulated an American general who committed a massacre in the Philippines. Should we tell young people that? And I think the answer is we should be honest with young people. We should not deceive them. Uh, we should be honest about the history of our country, and uh, we should be not only taking down the traditional heroes like Andrew Jackson, Theodore Roosevelt, but we should be giving young people an alternate set of heroes. Instead of Theodore Roosevelt, tell them about Mark Twain. Mark Twain, well, Mark Twain everybody learns about as the author of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, but when we go to school, we don't learn about Mark Twain as the vice president of the anti-imperialist league. We aren't told that Mark Twain denounced Theodore Roosevelt for approving this massacre of the Philippines. No, we want to give uh, young people uh, ideal figures like Helen Keller. And I remember learning about Helen Keller. Everybody learns about Helen Keller. You know, a disabled person who overcame her handicaps and became famous. But people don't learn in school, and young people don't learn in school what we want them to learn when we do books like A Young People's History of the United States, that Helen Keller was a socialist. She was a, a labor organizer. She refused to cross a picket line that was picketing a theater showing a play about her. And so there are these, these alternate heroes in American history. There's Fannie Lou Hamer and Bob Moses. They're the heroes of the civil rights movement. There are a lot of people who are obscure, who are not known. We have in this young people's history, we have a, uh, a young hero uh, who um, was sitting on the bus in, in Montgomery, Alabama, refused to leave the front of the bus. And it was before Rosa Parks. I mean, Rosa Parks is justifiably famous for refusing to uh, leave her seat, and she got arrested, and that was the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott, and really the beginning of a great movement in the South. But we—this uh, 15-year-old girl did it first. And so we, we have a lot of—we are trying to bring a lot of these obscure people uh, back uh, into the forefront of uh, our attention and, and inspire young people to say this is the way to live.
Howard Zinn in the Democracy Now! studio in 2009. Tune in Labor Day for an expanded Zentennial, our tribute to Howard Zinn to mark what would have been his 100th birthday. We'll include dramatic readings from voices of a people's history, including Alfre Woodard reading the words of the labor activist Mother Jones. Special thanks to Mike Burke, Neil Shabbat, and Brandon Allen. I'm Amy Goodman.